Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Theology can inspire either hope or fear in the body. Theology which starts with linking shame and guilt to the cross inspires fear deep in our consciousness. The cross is misused as a tool of oppression based on simplistic, supposedly binary, either-or truths. Divine or human? Good or bad? Innocent or guilty? This misuse means orienting our gaze towards binary opposition, towards the piercing and splitting of the body, and ultimately towards death. My name is Alex, and my pronouns are they, them. My journey started with that obscuring terror of shame and guilt. When I was a child, I felt like an alien, completely unable to work out where I fit in a binary male or female society. In my teens, that alienation turned to terror as I began to understand who I was, but had no words to describe my identity. When I began to describe that complex relationship between my mind and my body, I was diagnosed with gender dysphoria, with discomfort with my body, and with the way that society perceived my gender. The word dysphoria, though, is heavy with an assumption that my mind cannot embrace and love my body. That binary assumption to me mirrors the false binary of man equals XY chromosomes and phallus, versus woman equals XX chromosomes and vulva. A false binary that both school and church tried to teach me as a child. Theologians who start at guilt and shame when talking about the body often ask if I think that God made a mistake. I wonder why they assume that I hate this wonderful, resilient body, which I love. In asking this, they imply that body and mind can be separated and that the body should be revered. But I don't think that theology that is located at the cross alone allows for this supposed reverence for the human body. Instead, on the cross, the body is obliterated by hatred born of binary systemic oppression. 
The cross with that attendant guilt and shame is a part of the Christian narrative that I have heard over and over again all the way through my childhood and young adult years. Incarnation? Less so. Incarnation is all about changing things. And I wonder if the queerness of incarnation is why the church doesn't talk about it quite as much as it talks about the cross. God stretches flesh by bursting into time and ruptures our normative understandings. In canotic incarnation, God tumbles out of power into fleshy vulnerability. In prophetic creativity, God's autogenophilic, Mary's autogenophilic or virgin birthing of God stretches flesh, stretches science, stretches credulity and respectability politics. By birthing a son who should, if genetics are to be believed, have been female. Jesus's maleness shatters the idea that you simply need X and Y chromosomes to be male. The Queen in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland exclaimed that once I have believed six impossible things before breakfast. To believe in Jesus, I had to believe in complex bodies. I had to believe that the human body can be stretched to birth, to cradle, to contain, and yes, to touch divinity. I even came to believe that the body can be stretched beyond death to transformed new life. And so having gone on that theological learning journey, I went on a journey about how I understood my body, being able to experience my body anew through that lens of transformative incarnation. I came to realize that my body is not some static fact. It's a queer, living, fluid collection of cells into which God breathes almost infinite potential. My queerness mirrors the seahorse which both fertilizes its mate's eggs and then carries them in its brood pouch, bursting forth in a beautiful display of androgynous birth. And my queerness mirrors the body of Christ. My queerness is Imago Dei. My queerness is part of the church. So why is the body Ecclesia, the church, still stuck at crucifixion, at binary division, at an orientation towards death. My complex body is both part of the church and reflective of the body of Christ. Or, to put it in another way, the body of Christ is both trans and genderqueer. The church includes members who are male, members who are female, 
and members who are not defined by binary gender. And that has to impact how we do things. The church cannot be restricted to a pretend understanding that it's only one thing or one way. The church cannot continue to be limited towards normative binary debates that are literally tearing it apart. St. Paul refused to separate mind from body, from community. Paul's vision was of a church that had millions of human hands and feet and eyes and ears and, yes, genitalia in a complex creative being which is all the better for its internal contradictions and constant recreation. Elizabeth Stewart suggests that the body of Christ is literally stretched by each new believer that joins it. Christ's body is inevitably trans, inherently queer, and beautifully beyond binaries. And so the church must learn to urgently mirror incarnation, relying on that capacity to grow, to stretch, to change. We need to practice queerness, to listen and pay attention to those voices which challenge normativity, ready to be transformed rather than to debate. We need to speak about the fleshy hope that we embody more loudly than we squabble over the norms that we should surely be stretching far beyond. And so I choose the lens of incarnation over the blindfold of crucifixion. I choose hope over fear. I choose to dance towards new life rather than to trudge towards inevitable death. You can choose to be a part of the transition from a terrified church clinging on by its fingertips to a euphoric church that stretches so that every single person can encounter Christ's queer body. Thank you. recently in Palestine for a course about justice and peacemaking. On the seventh day, which was laundry day, I started my period. And all I had left to wear was a white dress. It was a week early. And the day we were going to have a, a bus journey to Jericho, so it was, a, it was a bit of a panic. So I skipped breakfast and I ran to the closest corner shop to find a box of tampons. There was one sacred box of tampons battered, bruised, and half-opened behind a row of pads. But I was like, this is the best thing ever, everything's gonna be fine. So I picked it up and I went to the cashier. And he put it in a white carrier bag, looked at me, went bright red, shook his head, repacked it in a black carrier bag, and then said, wait. And I was like, you know, I'm, this is so awkward already. Really, I have to wait? So he went and he came back with a box of paracetamol and a mango juice, and he said, these are a gift. So I left, also red, <laughs> feeling quite confused. But during this three-hour bus ride, feeling secure and fresh and ready to take on the day, my mind was taken back to my teenage years, and I remember waiting for a family member after my after-school drama club to take me home. 
And this place was a, a, a B&B style accommodation for asylum seekers. I, at 14 years old, had the code to enter the office, but the residents did not. So they would have to knock and ask usually a male uh, staff member for any kind of personal items, so razors or shower gel or sanitary products. And they would get like the cheapest, nastiest kind of, kind of return. How must of these menstruating people have felt? when my Palestinian shopkeeper, who was also like a young man, was so embarrassed with me, this visiting, able-bodied, Western, white women buying sanitary products from him, and these people who have fled their homes because of war, drought, domestic abuse, come to an alien place where they can't decide where they live, what they eat, even who they share a room with, can't even now control their own periods. What they receive does not sound like Amos 5, verses 24, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like an everlasting stream. Amos 5 is a prophetic cry that exposes the injustices and the exploitation in his ancient Israel. And this, his justice, like a river or a stream, this just gives connotations of abundance and flourishing. And the other thing about water is its naturally uncontrollable nature. But we do control it. <laughs> the holy land is not full of milk and honey, but it is partitioned between those who apparently deserve citizenship, sustenance, and rights, and those who are controlled, encaged, and collectively punished. And we, as Westerners, we go on these Disneyland-style biblical archaeological trips and forget our imperial legacy here and how our European guilt ethnically cleansed Palestinians and created a system of apartheid. How the justice for the people who endured the horrors of the Holocaust to vindicate us from our guilt also caused the Nakba. Us as a colonial power, we really believed that we had divine insight to decide who deserved rights and who did not. But I don't think this colonial mindset is over. I'm certain this colonial mindset is not over. The rich in our society are the ones who believe that they know what's best for the poor, despite the rich in our society living the way they do through the normality of exploiting them. Why do we as privileged Westerners still believe we know what's best for people we do not know? I think dwelling on our shared human depravity, this is where my reformed Calvinistic uh, bent's coming in, is actually really important because it crushes any superiority complex. We don't have clear-cut heroes and villains in our society, but we're all flawed and we're all like horribly, painfully distanced, but also close to God. We're so complicated. So this idea that rationality or logic can be disconnected from our humanity is a bit of a myth. And this idea of objectivity where we can be neutral actually severs our connections and our relationships with each other. But I think we do this, we, we disconnect from our emotions and we go to reasoning in order to protect ourselves. Our world right now is really scary. I'm sure you'll all agree. We live in a world that worships the individual and their relationship with wealth and success and exploitation. 
Amos warns us of this in 5.7. He said, there are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. My favorite philosopher, Bong Chong Hao, he writes about how the violence we see every day, the climate emergency, and the normality of exploitation is not normal. It's not healthy. It's not flourishing. And my goodness, it is not godlike. So we blind ourselves to the other. We stop our emotions in order to cope and in order to live the way we do, to keep on living the way we do and take away the guilt that should be there. But when encounter does happen in our spatial temporal reality, it becomes a very sacred space and it reveals community in the deepest kind of sense. When we give space for anger and when we give space for lament and when we can share suffering and pain and frustration, it's really important to share frustration. We should all be so frustrated. I think something, when that does happen, begins to be restored. And it becomes so obvious, so blindingly obvious, that we can't think about justice whilst being apathetic or cold or rational. But thinking about it in this other way and entering into somebody else's pain is so much harder. But Calvin makes another crucial point that radicalizes the idea that humans are created in God's image. Calvin talks about how God, when God sees us, they see themselves in a, as a mirror, as a mirror. So God's desire is for our boundless flourishing, our full humanity. No rejections, no distortions, no diminishment. And this is why Amos's justice is so abundant and so challenging. Because this is a high bar that God sets for ourselves and also our communities and our relationships and how we should see one another. But it goes even further because God doesn't only see God's self in us as individuals, but if we go back to Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, it talks of our bonds of peace. When we see justice as the restoration of relationships, we see the need to invest, be alongside with, and enter into the other as Christ fully entered us through the incarnation. Tolerance is so obviously not peace. Peace is full, intentional, costly understanding and love. Justice is this deep work on the way to peace. It's the work of mending, restoring, and re-intertwining with and subverting this neo-capitalistic, individualistic competitiveness and this homogenization of the other. So, to finish, I'm going to go back to my Palestinian shopkeeper. What happened in this scenario is he got over this societal stigma that was hurting our relationship. He got over his own emotional embarrassment and he went out of his way to help me, a really ill-equipped, embarrassed young person in a foreign place who just needed help. The asylum seekers, however, they're met with a pursuit of efficiency. Their humanness that's already united with God and seen in all of its beauty is denied and they're given the bare necessity and the bare minimum. And I really just think we can learn so much about justice by stepping away from easy solutions. But instead, we can embrace the complexity and the messiness and the divinity of our humanity, entering into another, 
into entering with another, into another, through the other, rather than thinking we can fix or find a solution for the other. This world is no longer the paradise that God designed for us, nor is it yet that secure golden city that God promises. In this world, we will have trouble. People get hurt, and people carry that hurt with them. I know this too well. If you'd seen me last May, you would have seen a successful, well-adjusted University of Oxford master's student in training to be a Baptist minister. What you wouldn't have seen was the hurt that I was carrying with me from an abusive relationship that I left two years before. In June, my legs gave out under the weight of that hurt. I had my first series of flashbacks as my mental health declined, I was diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, or CPTSD. I quit my hobbies, I bailed on plans with friends, and eventually I suspended from university. As I found myself in recovery, I found myself holding the letter to the Hebrews. This text was the subject of my aborted master's dissertation. And as I grappled with my own pain, I started to see how uncertainty and trauma underpinned this masterful, anonymous, theological address. Shelley Rambo calls trauma the suffering that does not go away. It is the hurt that remains and repeats in our souls and bodies after events of violence. In chapter 10, the author of Hebrews tells us that they are addressing a traumatized congregation. They remind their audience that they have suffered beatings, looting, and imprisonment, experiences which the members of the congregation carry with them in their souls and bodies as they listen to them speak. A young man rubs the scabs on his arm from being beaten in the street. His partner sits anxiously by him, still shaken by the cries for help that still ring in their ears. And Hebrews tells us, even those members of the congregation not directly targeted still suffered alongside those who were. This is a community carrying trauma. As Rambo puts it, their suffering has not gone away. Now, as if I was sitting in this congregation, I heard Hebrews speak to me. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. For I swore an oath in my anger, they shall not enter my rest. Now, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later on about another day. There remains, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest rests from their works, just as God did from his. Hebrews draws its text there from Psalm 95, which makes an example of that generation of Israel who wandered in the desert for 40 years after God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. 
the psalm calls its hearers to obedience, unlike that grumbling generation who never managed to enter the promised land. Hebrews uses this text differently, however, reading in light of Jesus' life. In chapters 3 and 4, the author goes on to explain how a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. Not a geographical Canaan rest, but an eternal Sabbath rest, which we enter following behind not Joshua, but Jesus. Hebrews does this because they receive the words of Scripture as the voice of God. I first learned this from Madison Pierce. Her work demonstrates how Hebrews receive Scripture as the voice of a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where other New Testament authors introduce their quotations with forms of the word gugraptai, the standard formula meaning it is written, Hebrews instead uses the word lege, meaning he says. We've just heard how they introduce Psalm 95 with as the Holy Spirit says. In Greek, kathos lege, topnuma tohagion. By reading in this way, Hebrews discovers a message of rest and endurance for their traumatized congregation. In his book, The Wandering People of God, Ernst Kaiserman describes how this imagery of wandering in the wilderness underpins everything that Hebrews has to say. They encourage their audience to persevere as if they themselves are stuck in the wilderness. Let us hold fast to the hope we profess, they say. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Do you ever feel like you're stuck between the pain of slavery and the promise of rest? I know that I do. In her book, Spirit and Trauma, Shelley Rambo describes trauma as a holy Saturday experience, caught in the uncertain remaining between death on Good Friday and resurrection on Easter Sunday. While Rambo's language of remaining emphasizes time, I believe Hebrews is expressing the very same thought with this geographical language of wandering. We know pain, we are promised rest, and in between, we carry trauma. Trauma is static. It makes us feel like we're still stuck on the wrong side of the Red Sea. But healing looks to the future. Rest in the promised land, resurrection on Easter Sunday. For that reason, the word recovery can actually be unhelpful. It implies us going back for something that we've lost. But in the same way that Hebrews goes back for old texts and reads them in new, life-giving ways, we can retrieve our wholeness while moving forwards. In the book of Revelation, John shows us a picture of the new Jerusalem. This final vision is not a return to the Garden of Eden. Instead, it is a new way of dwelling with God, which transforms all the hurt and pain of a fallen world. The Israelites were afraid to enter Canaan because it was so new and strange, but eventually there, they found a home. 
So as we encounter people and communities carrying trauma, Hebrews shows us a way. Recovery is a wandering from pain to healing. And that recovery is guided by the living and active voice of God. If only today we will hear that voice. And I'm here today to tell my story and to share the part that Hebrews has played in it as part of my own journey to remake myself into a transformed wholeness that tries to put Christ at the centre. And I am here, like the author of Hebrews, in front of an audience, inviting you all to do the same. We don't need to be afraid of the newness and uncertainty of wandering in the space between brokenness and redemption, Egypt and Canaan, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Eden and the New Jerusalem, there is new life to be recovered from old traditions. If only, like Hebrews, we can hear them as the voice of God. Recovery is a remaking of ourselves and our communities as we pay attention to that voice. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.